0: Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, United States Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, innovators, and those doing the -the boots-on-the-ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, President of the Robert H. Jackson Center. This episode is drawn from our October 21st, 2021 seminar, Cold War Secrets Revealed. There are four episodes in total. If you enjoy this episode, please check out the other seminar-related episodes, all of our podcast episodes, and our live, virtual, and in-person events.
1: Um, We would meet with number seven, just to be sure he was still there. (laughs) And uh, uh, the conditions were stark. He was in a a stone cell, iron bars, and it was really... um, tough living for any human. We were concerned that he seemed to be losing speed, as it were. And we felt that it was our obligation. He's our prisoner and we have to keep him healthy. This, this, is, this is a clear international law responsibility for us. And so we thought it would be good to get him outside in the sun uh, to uh, keep him healthy. And we mentioned that to the Soviets and they said, Niet, no, we are not gonna do that. So my French and British colleague and I uh, worked with them, with the Soviets and said, look, what if he's working? What if he's out in the yard working and he's, he's raking leaves or something? Well, okay, maybe that, that took a long time to negotiate. And we presented that to number seven. And the bastard put his nose in the air and said, I am a minister of the Reich. Ministers of the Reich do not engage in manual labor. <laughs> no. So we had to go back to the Soviets and tell them, uh, sorry, that, that, that's not gonna work. We said, well, all you have to do is hold a, hold, a, hold a hose or stand there with a rake to be in the sun instead of in this dank stone iron prison. Yeah. No.
2: <laughs> this book that you have written that we're talking about today, dealing with the Cold War, has been reviewed very favorably. Uh, among those is uh, uh, David Atchison, a United States Attorney for District of Columbia, who says he Arthur T. Downey has performed a valuable service by putting in a single volume a smooth, readable, even entertaining history of the legal and constitutional issues produced by the Cold War and their resolution.
1: And his father, of course, is David Atchison. Yes, and,
2: uh, dropping names, yeah. I like this. And then on top of it, towards the sum up, you talk about various lawyers of this book, and you also talk about the a young lawyer suvi- serving as legal advisor to the United States mission in Berlin, who learned a good deal of history during his regular meetings with Hitler's one-time deputy, Rudolf hessen Spandau prison. What caused you to write this book?
1: Uh, I had I had written a book on the Civil War uh, a few years before that. Uh, And it it was about Civil War lawyers, because I learned at that time everybody in America who was anybody was a lawyer. All of Lincoln's cabinet were lawyers. All of uh, Jefferson Davis's cabinet were lawyers, except for Davis, he was a West Pointer. And lawyers ran the show. They dominated Congress and everything else because uh, in those days or before then uh, back in England, any aspiring young man, uh, his path of advancement was either in the ministry or in the military. We didn't have an established church, so the ministry was not an appropriate path. We didn't have a standing army. And so the path for a promising young man was the law. He didn't have to go to law school, could just read law a bit. and And so they dominated. I mean, overwhelmingly, Congress was composed of lawyers. Not today. most people think, damn lawyers run Congress too, but they don't. it's they're they're way less than half. Um, So I wrote that book, and the publisher, it was on uh, the Civil War and lawyers, Civil War lawyers. And the publisher came back and said, we've been so pleased with the reception for the book, we've decided to do a series of books on war and the law. Will you do the series? I said, no, I don't want to do a series of books. And they said, how about just one book, one law? And I said, which, which war? They said, any war you want, pick one. And I said, well, I lived through the Cold War. How about that? They said, okay. So that's how that's how I did it. Why I did it.
2: You know, it is interesting when you talk about lawyers who played a role during the Cold War, just to drop names uh, that you cover, like Dean Atchison, James Baker, George Ball, William Casey, Fidel Castro, Clark Clifford, uh, Gerald Ford, John Foster Dulles, James Donovan, who is a subject. And by the way, I know watching this is Anthony Palermo. Anthony Palermo was the... Uh, uh, second seat prosecutor of Colonel Rudolph Abel, wow. which is a chapter in your book. Mm-hmm. And so, Anthony, wherever you are, I just wanted to reach out. Uh, but James Donovan represented Colonel mm-hmm. Abel. Mm-hmm. Gorbachev, Ful- uh, J.W. Fulbright, Alger Hiss, Henry Jackson, uh, Richard Nixon, you know, Joseph McCarthy, Robert Kennedy. You know, These are names which is, goes on and on of people who were players during that Cold War and are lawyers. Yeah and is that do you think that's just coincidence or the fact that lawyers at the time certainly during this time frame were more likely to be in positions of political power and political uh, decision making
1: yes i think it's that uh, greg i i think we were we were still transitioning from the uh, from the civil war period to the current period where lawyers were are now less visible less involved than they were at that time is there a um, and, and excuse me, and, and so much of what we were talking about during the Cold War, which <clears throat> if the Cold War had a physical center, it was Berlin, uh, and our rights to be in Berlin, and the obligations of the Soviets with respect to Berlin. We had this deep overlay of law that, that, that was really very prominent. That, that, that was the dominant thing. So it made sense that legal issues in the law would be involved in that draws in lawyers.
2: As at the time, I mean, we kind of tie in the Nuremberg trial. We're on our 75th anniversary here. And during that time period, there was the control council created among the four allies, mm-hmm. which divided up Germany, but also divided up Berlin.
1: Yeah, into four sectors. Yeah. And the uh, Spandau prison was in the British sector uh, of Berlin. And uh, it was just so important for the Soviets. You know, every Soviet at that time would quote Uh, Lenin quoting Marx that whoever possesses Berlin controls Germany and whoever controls Germany controls Europe. And so that was central for their their whole view of things.
2: And you were part of that really being assigned by the U.S. State Department there as the control council. I mean, that was, you were Mm -hmm. a player in that.
1: Yeah, it was most interesting. Period. How did it work? Well, well the Soviets were, were out of The Soviets left four-power control,
2: yeah.
1: uh, except for the Berlin Air Safety Zone Center, which was uh, a, uh, a position in Berlin uh, where each of the four powers had a, had a representative, usually a, an Air Force colonel, uh, to control the three air corridors coming into Berlin. And the only other f- continuing four-power operation was Spandau Prison, yeah. where we would all meet. So th- those were the two uh, heretics, not heretics. Uh, it's a, hereditary. Uh, hereditary, right of of the of the original four-power agreement.
2: You know, if you see, go on YouTube at some point, you'll see the marching in and the marching out of the soldiers. That once a month, it's it's. it's Kind of one-upsmanship, and uh, on both of everybody's army
1: and and it was it, it was really very powerful. I would always attend the transfer of of control uh, sessions out in the yard of the prison. It's a very large area. And as it happened, we and the Soviet mm-hmm. troops would hand off to each other. and as the end of of the Soviet month would be the beginning of the American month to guard the, uh, the prison uh, along the walls and they would stand out in the courtyard and we would always get the biggest guys we could get. <laughs> uh, most of them had been, uh, had, had fought in, in Vietnam. They were battle tested and they just looked mean as could be. And the Soviets of course did the same thing. They got their biggest guys and they were lined up uh, facing each other. <clears throat> and each of the two commanders would make a formal statement in English and in Russian to each other in the name of the President of the United States. I hereby transfer the, con- the responsibility for the control and protection of Spandau prison to you, Colonel so-and-so. And then the Soviet together yeah, the Russian would say the same thing back. I accept this. And then two of them would go off to each of the guard posts around the, uh, around the perimeter. An incredibly stirring event. Yeah. Nothing has ever approached that for me.
2: Well, oh, it was interesting uh, when you think of the uh, pomp and circumstance concerning it for the benefit of one person. Yeah, up there. <laughs> you know, so all of you.
1: And he eventually died, killed himself um, at the prison.
2: Yeah, we've talked. They used the term Cold War. When did it begin?
1: <laughs> uh, the Cold War, the term. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the term began probably in 1947. I think Walter Lippmann, the columnist, wrote a book called "The Cold War." Uh, the 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 beginning of the Cold War, I think, can be dated uh, in several ways. Um, maybe the first is 1946. That's when Winston Churchill traveled by train with Harry Truman to uh, Fulton, Missouri. And gave a speech which was titled "The Sinews of Peace," but it, it was in that speech that he said, uh, from Stettin in the Baltic to um, Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has fallen, has descended across Europe. Um, so many people will say that's the beginning of the Cold War. The Soviets, by the way, in Nuremberg heard that, read that speech, and were kind of perplexed. They said, "Hey, we've been working here as allies here in Spanda. We're all buddies. Go out drinking together." And Churchill says, "Now we're we're enemies. How do we deal with this?" It was it was hard. So anyway, so some people would say it began in 1946 with the Churchill speech. Others would say, "No, it began 47, 48, with the, uh, the the development of what was called the Truman Doctrine, which was uh, to actively intervene in in Turkey and in Greece to prevent communist takeovers." Um, with the uh, General Marshall, Secretary of State Marshall's uh, commencement address at Harvard, where he proposed the Marshall Plan. Um, Others would say it began in 1949 with the uh, creation of NATO, um, which demonstrated that uh, uh, those countries were quite concerned about the Soviet Union and the spread of communism. Um, the, The original goal of NATO was to keep the Soviets out, keep the Americans in, and keep the Germans down. They were not members, of course. They were still occupied. Uh, so many would say that 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 was the, the beginning of the Cold War.
2: Um, George Kennan was the ambassador to Russia, and you spend uh, quite a bit of time on the book about Keenan and his memo to the president about how to react to the Russians and the concept of containment. Um, could talk about that, and
1: and he he wrote what was called the long letter, uh, which if you go to the Truman Library in Independence, Missouri, is prominently displayed, um, where he proposed the, the the containment of the Soviet Union. That's the way to do it, uh, and then he wrote a long article in Foreign Affairs magazine at that time, and that that became the the rallying cry for the Truman administration's dealing with the Soviets very famous, highly influential, extraordinary man.
2: Obviously, part and parcel of this is a fear factor. And uh, curious about your own personal experience. I know my own uh, during the Cold War, when you first personally kind of realized that, that there was this uh, big bad bear in Russia and we should fear it. Uh,
1: I don't think there was a... A moment of enlightenment. I, I think it was part of the culture. Um, you know, once once they exploded the nuclear bomb, um, and once Eastern Europe was scarfed up, I think it was it was in the lifeblood of the United States at that point. So it wasn't. I had some epiphany that oh, I'm scared of these guys, um, and I I. Traveled a lot to that, through Eastern Europe, and later through the Soviet Union. Um, I had clients in in some of those countries too, so I would I would travel there. Um, my wife and I and two of our college kids, college age kids, drove through uh, e- East Germany and uh, Hungary, uh, Czechoslovakia. Uh, about six months before the wall came down. Hmm. Um, my two kids always suspected of the, that. I, I knew the wall was coming down and they they wanted, and I wanted them to see what it was like before the wall. And I have not disabused them of that. <laughs> <laughs> they, I really knew what was happening, but that was really a fascinating period to see how things were changing. The, the Hungarians um, basically lifted uh, border controls. So any Hungarian, sort of a recreation of the Hungarian of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Hungarians could move f- through the border between Hungary and, and Austria. Well, as soon as that border was opened, it was clogged all the time. But Poles and East Germans and everybody would go to Hungary, so they could come out to Vienna uh, through the Hungarian border, which was opened. And uh, fortunately. Uh, um, Gorbachev uh, had uh, released the the uh, doctrine that that permitted the uh, uh, the Soviets to intervene in any country, w- which which was getting slack. Yeah.
2: Cold War time period, the 40s, the 50s, the Berlin airlift. I mean, there was a whole lot of posturing going on at that time. Uh, do you think that was proactive or reactive? You know, the
1: real posturing, down. if you're talking about posturing, was how that location, Berlin, the wall, was a forum for our presidents. Ah. I mean, we all remember uh, Ich bin ein Berliner, John F. Kennedy, at the, at the Brandenburg Gate. Um, I knew the woman who was his... Uh, German teacher to get him ready for that speech. And she told me that that uh, he was just awful with, with language. I mean, brilliant guy, but awful with language. And his original text was supposed to be a page long. And he just couldn't get through it. It would come out all garbled. Then it got down to be a paragraph. And then it ended up with just this phrase, Ich bin an der um, But But Kennedy used it and then Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, Reagan used it. It's been a great theater Mm -hmm. stage for for American presidents.
2: And with regards on the other side, during the 1947, 48 time period, when the requirement of the Berlin airlift, and ultimately it was the the Stalin thinking that Berlin was his. Mm -hmm. And and Berlin, of course, it, it it was landlocked. I mean, there was no way to get from West Germany to Berlin except to a quarter.
1: It. It's 110 miles into uh, the uh, German Democratic Republic, as it became known. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That <clears throat> time period, again, I, I just, the nuclear uh, equality, if you will, and, and Nancy will be talking about that a great deal as the, the source of that uh, equality of the, the arms race, which ultimately kept everything at bay and my fear factor, mm-hmm. I'm 70, uh, you know, when you're under the desks and you're, you know, uh, a whole lot of sure. things going on and certainly with the Bay of Pigs, I mean, I—that that is just so emblazoned in my mind as to the fear that you had watching this on TV.
1: And the Cuban Missile Crisis. And
2: the Cuban Missile no, Crisis yeah. which followed that. And so the whole sum total of that and from from your perspective, you know, as you're writing this, um, it's hard to glaze whether this was, again, it's posturing, who's going to muscle out who, who's going to blink first. Um, do you get a sense of all that?
1: Yeah, it's, it's really quite amazing how uh, exactly, as you say, uh, you know, the blinking part and how close we came so often to real, real disasters, certainly during the Cuban Missile Crisis. But the other time was in 1983, I think, uh, when the uh, uh, there was going to be a NATO exercise uh, to simulate a nuclear exchange. And the Soviets, for years, had been tasking the KGB to come up with Measuring sticks that we can figure out before NATO uh, might launch a first strike. How? What? What are the signals we we might be able to figure out? And the, the 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 results of the KGB study was well, watch out for massively increased communications between Washington and London. That's that that'll be the signal that something's going on. And 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 you better be careful. So in eighty-three, all of a sudden, there's a massive surge of communications between Washington and London. And the Soviets said, Oh my God, it's starting. And they had some word that that there was an attack coming. And it was so serious that they loaded with nuclear weapons, they loaded aircraft MIGs in East Germany, ready to take off. Uh, and it turned out, of course. <laughs> The United States had just invaded Grenada, a British colony. And so the communications between Washington and and London were massive because the Queen was unhappy. The United States had just gone into her turf. And and so it (laughs) became within a hair of of a serious mess.
2: As you're researching this book, uh, uncovering that aspect of it, I'm not sure many people appreciated that aspect and how, uh, such a tipping point we were at, you know, and, and did you do, were there other kind of surprises as you, you know, as you lived it, you saw, you were kind of part of it, you were on the inside and then on the outside of it all. Um, uh, but that you said, Hmm, I had no idea this was all happening. Was there a sort of chapter that you was so surprised to you?
1: Well, maybe the one funny one is, uh, in uh, 1970, 71, 71 uh, I was on the NSC staff at that time, and it was all over the news that Kissinger was in Pakistan. And he he had been meeting with the Prime Minister of Pakistan and he got sick, Kissinger did, and the prime minister, the news reports were the prime minister opened up his country estate for Kissinger to go and get well. But the word was he wasn't going to be talking to the press for for a couple of days. And then the next thing we knew, in fact, Kissinger wasn't sick. He was on the Pakistani airline with a Chinese co-pilot flying to Beijing to meet with, with Zhou Enlai to work out the famous Mao-Nixon visit the next year. And this was the huge secret, and it was kept secret from me. Ah. <laughs> I didn't even know that. It, it was it was quite amazing how uh, how how that was, and that was a very important point—the Nixon opening to to China, because the Soviet Chinese relationship was always a bit wobbly. Um, they shared a twenty five hundred mile border, which was tense at times. Um, the Soviets would would play up to India every once in a while just to stick it in the nose of the Chinese, their enemy. Uh, so that was a very interesting period, very secret and surprising period.
2: Your boss for a period of time was Henry Kissinger.
1: Right. Do
2: you have any inter- interaction with him? Oh, sure, all the time. Well, let's talk about Henry Kissinger. It's that We haven't ever talked about him. And it's still alive, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was your sense of him then and perhaps in reflection now?
1: Well, I I don't think it's changed. He's extraordinarily uh, brilliant, demanding. For example, when I first went there to the NSC staff, um, he he asked me to do a memo on something and I did it, sent it over and it came back right away the next day with a little scrawl at the top, um, are you sure? So I did it, sent it back. And two days later, it came back with another one Is this the best you can do? I said, oh, my God. Uh, so I <laughs> he stayed up my day, redid it, and I gave it to him. And he said, All right, so now I'll read it. So that was <laughs> his way of making sure people were pushing to try to do the best you can all the time. Um, <laughs> and, so he, he was a hard taskmaster and a and, and a master at keeping secret. I mean that that trip to Pakistan and then to Beijing was extraordinary. I mean he kept it secret from the Secretary of State, from everybody except the president, and that, that was a huge, huge, uh, clever move. Is that how he
2: ran his office? Sort of, I like envisioning as you're talking about that. Um, sort of like he used hit used Hitler's you know, pure principle where he had these silos. Essentially, nobody ultimately knew what everybody else was doing. It was just boom, boom, boom. It, it, was that a...
1: There, was, I mean, there just, was a lot of that. And he would also uh, push people against each other. Uh, uh, my two colleagues were both Soviet experts. And he would play off the other. Hey, Hal just said this, Bill. What do you think? And And, you know, don't tell... Bill this, hell, but so and so. Uh, but his goal was to get, drive his horses to get, get the best out of them. Yeah. And it, it was effective. And it's a, uh, one of the problems I think we've had in recent years with the NSC is starting, I think it was during the uh, Obama administration, the NSC staff was 250 people, 235 people, when I was there, it was 32 of us. And, and it, when you're small enough, it functions better because you're talking to everybody else all the time. But when you're 200 people, uh, it doesn't work. And you're getting too much in the weeds. How'd you get the job? Uh, I had a friend in Berlin when I was there. Uh, David Anderson, who later became our ambassador to Yugoslavia. Uh, And David's closest friend was Larry Eagleburger, who later became Secretary of State. And Larry had been at that point on the NSC staff, and he had a heart attack. I wonder why. Uh, And uh, so he was looking for a recommendation to Kissinger to add, to, uh, not, not exactly to replace him, but something like it. And he asked David if he'd like it, and for reasons that escaped me, David said no. But he recommended me. That's how I got there. Wow, huh. just small world stuff. It's Washington small world. Yeah.
2: and you and you've been part of that not only it uh it was you wrote this book of the Cold War. You talked about the fact that you uh you lived it. You were part of it. You were in the administration as part of that, and uh, perhaps uniquely being able to. To write this kind of book, and it's really kind of American Bar Association lawyers' assistance, isn't it? I mean, part of a series of, of books uh, on, on lawyers and, and you know wars and stuff like that.
1: Well, that's what they wanted me to do, you know, yeah. but, but they never really did it. In in the end, there's there's, there's not been another one like this. Okay, so. Uh,
2: Was there an as we've talked, we've kind of jumped around a little bit chronologically, but is there a point where you felt like is this the Cold War was heating up, heating up, heating up, hit the at the top point where it was really is this the Bay of Pigs, the Cuban Missile Crisis? Is this where we were really at our closest point?
1: Well, clearly the 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 uh, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then that that uh, 1982 yeah, right. period, uh, but after that things changed. Uh, we had uh, we were so we as a world <laughs> were so lucky to have the right people at the right time. Um, I think um, we had Reagan beefing up the military. Uh, and sometimes he would get out of hand in charging uh, with with abusive language uh, the Soviets. But still, uh, at at the bottom, who's got who's got the nukes? Who's got the military strength was very important. And he beefed up our military so that the Soviets knew we 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 were a serious threat. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we were fortunate to have uh, Bush. Jim Baker, Secretary of State, an extraordinary group. Um, and on the Soviet side, of course, uh, Gorbachev, um, who came at just the right time. We, we had this, this period in the Soviet Union when we had uh, four chairmen of the of the Communist Party uh, within, four, within four years. We had uh, Andropov. Brezhnev, Chernenko, and then Gorbachev. There was kind of a leadership fatigue going on, uh, just as we had a strong, strong one. Um, so we, we were very lucky to have good people in the right places. And of course, the people in Eastern Europe were just so extraordinary, like Valencia in, in uh, solidarity in Poland. Um, and to have a Polish Pope at that time going to the Gdańsk shipyard uh, that just filled people with hope, uh, and in Czechoslovakia the same thing, and in Hungary. So we, we were very fortunate to have the right people in the right place at the time uh, that that could lead to a decision to to, to fix it all, get it, end the occupation of Germany and so on.
2: It, Talk a lot about the interpersonal uh, or the relationship and the names of the individuals of the Soviet side. Certainly Brezhnev was very much part of an extended period of time. Was there an infrastructure underneath that where there was back channel conversations, the, you know, uh, groups that really were constantly communicating, which would then sort of set the stage and perhaps ratchet down the temperature?
1: There were lots of groups, uh, unofficial, private uh, groups that uh, thought of themselves as being that conduit, that unofficial, uh, give me the message and I'll pass it under the table when I'm in Moscow next. Um, I, I saw some of that. I was involved for some years with the United Nations Association uh, in New York that had a what was called the Parallel Studies Programme. With the Soviet counterparts. On the American side, our group was led by Brent Scowcroft um, and Governor Scranton. Uh, and and uh, before we would, and, and we would meet alternatingly in alternating years in Moscow or in New York. And beforehand, we would always go down to Washington. They would come down to Washington, meet with people in the government, and say, no, we're gonna be going to Moscow next week. What do you really want us to say? Yeah. Uh, but I think that was more showed than anything else.
2: As you reflect back on uh, on the book, was there a you know we certainly seen Reagan tear down this wall, and uh, there was of course Kennedy you talked about. But was there sort of an individual who maybe was able to set the stage for that which happened? ultimately, when the wall came down in the 1990s, the Soviet Union sort of collapsed. A personality?
1: Well, of course, Gorbachev was was a dominant personality here, Um, a lawyer. (laughs) Um, And and I think we're very fortunate to have someone like like, uh, George Bush, uh, H.W. Bush, um, because he was a gentleman. He had been ambassador to China. He had been head of the CIA. He understood those kinds of workings. Uh, but uh, he was, you know, we could have blown it badly, uh, and said, "We won. We won the Cold War. You guys lost." Uh, he didn't gloat, and that was so important to have somebody of of his stature uh, taking that position. That 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 we both won. Nobody lost. Uh, which was we were very fortunate and fortunate to have Jim Baker as his Secretary of State, because they were tight as two tennis players as they used to play tennis all the time. Uh, and and, uh, uh, and and on the Soviet side, Shevardnadze was was the Foreign Minister for Gorbachev. But when when a Secretary of State like like a Baker spoke, everybody understood he was talking for the President. And that that's important because so often that's not the case, uh, and, and the other side is looking for some 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 daylight between the secretary of state and the president that never happened with us. Very important. The book, the
2: Cold War, in many senses focuses in on Berlin during that time period. The Cold War generally comes to an end. Is Taiwan the new Cold War epicenter? <laughs>
1: Uh, Well, to the extent that Berlin was the physical epicenter, the physical symbol of the Cold War, and I think it was. uh, Clearly, Taiwan is today in a similar position um, in that everybody's focused on it. Everybody is looking for that to be the big problem. Um, Last Earlier this year, I guess it was, Admiral Stavridis, the former NATO uh, Supreme Commander, wrote a book called uh, 2034, I think it was called, and it's it's a novel, but he poses a nuclear exchange between the United States and uh, China uh, a dozen years from now. Uh, you, you don't want to be in Galveston or in San Diego uh, when the Chinese bombs are dropping, uh, which is which is the two places in his novel he has the Chinese doing it. Uh, yeah, it's it's the, it's the physical symbol. Um, I, I don't think we're in a cold war yet with China. Mm. We're in. Uh, I would prefer to call it a strategic rivalry. Uh, we haven't come to a cold war, though we may. We and 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 it would be Taiwan. That, that would do it. I I regret that it's Taiwan. I would much rather be in the South China Sea. Uh, uh, one of the other differences, of course, is that is is that in in the European Cold, in the Soviet Cold War, uh, the the physical military threat was in an area of, of, of central Germany called the Fulda Gap. There's a gap in the in the in, in the hills and mountains and NATO was prepared for hundreds of Warsaw Pact tanks rolling through the, the Fulda Gap toward Frankfurt and the Rhine River. And here, the conflict would be on at sea. And remember, the Chinese Navy is larger than the American Navy right now. Um, so it could be difficult. All the war games, reportedly, uh, that the Pentagon and Rand have played show the United States losing a war with China, uh, uh, and I, I think it's also quite unlike unlike the Berlin situation, the Cold War, where our rights, uh, the Western rights to Berlin and to uh, and all the affiliated, were clearly documented, and uh, uh, unambiguous and. We could, as a nation, uh, when Eisenhower went on television and, and spoke of our rights, we have a solid legal foundation. And with Taiwan, you have a country that says, this island is part of us. And at some point that island might say, no, we are totally independent. But imagine during the Civil War, if the British said to the Confederacy, hey, we'll do a deal. We rely on your cotton exports to Britain for our mills. And if you give us a deal on that, we will recognize the Confederacy as a separate state, as a separate country. We'd be pretty angry at Great Britain. And this is, this is complication that the situation with respect to Taiwan is not clear with respect to the mainland. It's vague, uh, good arguments on all sides. So unlike the Cold War, there is a lack of total clarity which is worrisome.
2: A book reviewer said the West won the Cold War in no small measure by adherence to our belief in the rule of law and the leadership of prominent American lawyers. Arthur Downey was on the front line of Cold War as the legal advisor to the US Mission in Berlin, has written this excellent, fascinating history of that effort. Some and substance of that dealt with the rule of law. You talked about it just a few mm-hmm. minutes ago. What's the status of the rule of law on an international basis? We talked about here the 75th anniversary Nuremberg trial. And if there's anything we learned about last night as the fact of uh, certainly in the German unification is the succession in the, of the rule of law. Where are we today?
1: I think we've just been moving sideways. I don't think we've made any serious affirmative uh, cohesion about the rule of law universally. We're, we're just not grabbing it yet, and uh, uh, we haven't talked enough about it, I think. I mean, it, you know, it may come up uh, that there was a, a uh, International Court of Justice decision about the South China Sea, for example, um, who owns what, and so on, and that's that's good. Although uh, the Chinese have not accepted that decision, uh, and 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 with respect, if if you're still talking about the Taiwan thing, there's a sort of a conflict there between um, uh, the concept of territorial integrity, whose territory is is Taiwan. Uh, and 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 freedom of expression and self determination. So you have the conflict between self determination. The Taiwanese say we want to be separate and independent, so on, and and territorial integrity. Mainland China saying we're one China and no separation. And that that's a little fuzzy, as opposed to our rights to be in Berlin and so on. Although. Uh, yeah, enough.
2: If I were Chuck Gustafson, your good friend, and I were sitting here, and Chuck had the final question to you, what might that be? Um, Aside from the tennis game,
1: <laughs> Chuck Gustafson, I grew up here in in Jamestown, and uh, is a friend of Graves, a friend of mine. We were both young lawyers at the State Department together, and he uh, was a uh, until this year when he retired. He was a law professor at Georgetown Law School. Um, and I just lost him there.
2: But, who, well, if he had a question of you, what would, oh. he knows enough about you that I, I don't know. What would he be asking you, kind of that one zinger, that that finale, that great conclusion question?
1: Is he he, hard? He would say, he would say, look, uh, you've... Uh, you've not said anything about the gaping hole that these, the Russians now claim that when, when we settled the German issue and recognized both Germanys, and both Germanys went into the, into the UN, and then we put them together, and there's a single unified Germany. Um, part of that deal was we wouldn't add to NATO Any of the Eastern European and certainly not the former Soviet socialist republics like Lithuania, uh, Estonia and uh, Latvia as part of NATO, that would make perfect sense. And of course, the Russians say that all the time. You guys promised us that uh, you would not move NATO eastward. And you have, because there are now 30 members of NATO uh, the last one last year, North Macedonia, uh, and and but you you guys have put Lithuania and Latvia and Poland and Hungary and everybody's in the, in in NATO now, and you said you wouldn't do it. That's a tough one to deal with. I think the only way to deal with it is to say that makes perfect sense. But if it was so important to you to to, give, to get in exchange for giving up Germany and, 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 and letting Germany be unified and in NATO, because they could have said, OK, we can we can unify Germany, uh, but it can't be in NATO. But they yielded on that. And they yielded on everything. And so it, we must have given them in exchange this promise, we won't move NATO eastward. And we did. But I think the response is, if it's that important to you, Russians, Soviets, uh, don't you think you would have written something down? Nobody has been able to find a document, a single piece of paper where the West, where the Soviet, where, 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 the, uh, where the Americans, the Brits or the French promised not to move NATO eastward. And you would have thought would have been there. So I think that's that's the hardest thing because it, it still rankles the Russians, of course. Uh, but if you're in Lithuania, uh, you're very happy to be part of NATO. Uh, yeah.
2: Well, it's interesting because it'll come up a little bit later in our conversations with uh, Council General Gill. We talk about the Stasi and that Stasi's relationship with the KGB during that time in Berlin. And when all things Fell apart. One of the KGB agents in Dresden was a guy named Vladimir Putin,
1: thirty-seven-year-old guy. Yeah, and who uh, 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 we've been in Dresden, and 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 I've I, I've gone to the building that was the KGB headquarters there, and I can picture him standing out front with a with a pistol. Uh, uh, as, as as happened as the mobs as the east german mobs were coming toward it and has he set the, the codes and the papers on fire in the backyard standing there with his with his pistol saying i've been instructed by moscow to shoot anybody who tries to come on to this building yeah just at the same time that a 35 year old chemist uh, from east berlin went through the wall Uh, looked in West Berlin and thought it was neat, but said she really had to get back to uh, work at the chemistry factory. Uh, That, of course, was Angela Merkel. Uh, Amazing time.
2: And at the same time, uh, a guy of a similar age named David Gill, uh, who was the head of uh, the East German resistance, was storming the Berlin Stasi building to preserve the records which were being destroyed. And so that's a story to be told.
0: You have been listening to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, presented in collaboration with Chautauqua Institution. Our program's associate producer is Nicole Gustafson. Bryson Barnes is our producer and composer. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. The content for this program was drawn from Tea Time with the Jackson Center, a Facebook live event produced by the Jackson Center. The mission of the Robert H. Jackson Center is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in a great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of future or previous guests through our website. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe. Thank you.